0: My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, MC Ashley, Christian Ashley. It is time for us to continue in our Genesis series going into chapter three. But before that, guys, I was on my seminary life again, as Brandon Knight and I were discussing like uh, fortuitously enough the Old Testament and whether or not it matters, and obviously, since I'm going through it, you should probably figure out how I feel about that. But if you want more of that discussion to see, like, you know, why does it matter? Like, what books of the Bible don't get covered in the Old Testament as much as much as they should? Like, head over to my seminary, uh, my seminary life. I had a really fun time. Brandon's a great guy, a really cool guy. Love talking with him. So have at it. With that in mind, we will be going into Genesis chapter 3. We'll be starting in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There is a lot that has transpired in this one verse, and I will try and cover as much of it as possible. There is an unknown amount of time in between Genesis 2.26 and Genesis three one. It's not specified. We don't know. We're not entirely sure how long Adam and the yet-to-be-named Eve were in the Garden of Eden. It could have been a day, or it could have been billions of years. It's next to impossible to know because there's nothing concrete that says, this happened. Regardless, enough time had passed that the command of God to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was an afterthought, making them both ripe for temptation. And as discussed before on this show, like, temptation itself is not a sin. But giving into it always is. So they probably were tempted with the idea before this of, well, he said not to, but maybe I could. Maybe I should. Maybe it's a test. But the serpent is the one who changes everything. And speaking of that serpent, let us explore this mysterious serpent who comes out of left field and and works here as one of the craftiest manipulators in history. The serpent is given no origin point or explanation as to why he is different than the rest of the animals or... Maybe at this point in time, all animals could speak. Like, who knows? Uh, with just the information presented to us. Now, providentially enough for all of us, there's other stuff in the Bible that enhances the story. We'll get there when we get there. But if you're just reading this, you go, wait, he, uh, he wasn't mentioned before now. And suddenly he's talking and I didn't know any animals could do that. <laughs> That's a natural feeling to have. He is introduced as crafty and not in a negative sense. Like the Hebrew word arum, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, who knows, is meant to, in a more kind of neutral fashion than how we would look at some words like maybe cunning or shrewd or crafty, that sometimes that gets translated into as in, in English. It's not really a negative connotation to that word. I mean, and if not for the serpent's eventual actions in this chapter, it could almost be interpreted as a, as a positive trait. But this craftiness is the serpent's greatest strength in that it can twist the words of God to sow the seeds of doubt in the woman and man by purposefully misquoting God's command to make the idea of banning a single tree's fruit ridiculous, as all the others are okay to eat. So why is this one so special? Why can't you eat from this one? And we can also note that when the serpent speaks, in the original Hebrew, it refers to God not as Yahweh, but Elohim, showing its irreverence or even possible fear at using God's holier name in this circumstance. Both names being holy, you'd have to refer to God as someone, as something, but one is definitely showing more reverence if you're using that correctly. But who the heck is the serpent? Like, where does he come from? How can evil exist in a world that hasn't fallen yet? Because obviously the serpent isn't doing this out of the goodness of his heart. How does that work when sin hasn't entered the world for man? Well, because it hasn't entered the world for man, doesn't mean it hasn't done that for the angels who've fallen and have become the demons. And there's a lot of cosmology behind this. I mean, honestly, we don't have the time to discuss all of it. I'll do my best to bring everything up that'll make enough sense for this. The world is uncorrupted at this point in time, but part of the heavenly host is not. At an unknown point in time, I mean, it could have been before Genesis 2.26. It could have been somewhere in between 2.26 and 3.1. Oh, excuse me, not 2.26, 2.25. I've been saying that wrong this entire time. I apologize. We don't know. I mean, the, the simple fact of the matter is we don't know. Like, uh, there's some verses in the Bible saying, like, you know, that this wasn't an always thing. It was something that happened that later on. But we don't, like, have a chronological date in Scripture that says this is when the demons fell. This is when Satan's rebellion happened. And speaking of, at some unknown point in time, Satan, also known as Lucifer, led a rebellion against God, seeing himself as higher and better than God. Now, he swayed several angels to his rebellion and ultimately lost against God, being cast down to the earth and hell. In Isaiah 14, 12-15, and Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19 we see parallel descriptions being offered of both human kings and Satan, with the imagery supporting both being described by the language used, depicting the pride of man and Satan in rebelling against God. Now, for the sake of time, We'll go through Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 alone, although I do recommend that you do read Ezekiel twenty eight eleven through 19 for further evidence of these ideas. Uh, that actually references the garden. And in the NIV, we'll see for Isaiah, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Now, in these verses, we see the Hebrew word halal, which means a shining one. And it comes from the word halal, which means to shine. And some translations may outright call the king in that passage Lucifer, while others will translate it as morning star Given what other words are used in Hebrew in the same verse, however, in Scripture we don't explicitly—I said I stress that word explicitly—because this is more poetry and imagery. See Satan, uh, Satan, Satan being referred to as the serpent until Revelation, both in twelve nine and twenty verse two. Now here's twelve nine in the KJV for reference. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. This, ultimately, ends up as the best evidence to leak Satan with the serpent, as he is likewise described as such in Revelation 22. So, there you go. This is why we correlate Satan with the serpent. This is why Satan is the serpent. It just takes a very long time there, but guess what? Scripture is in continuity with itself. It will never contradict itself. It was planned from the very beginning for that to be revealed at that moment in time. All those seeds were planted along the way for people to go, oh, well, maybe they're one and the same. Now, there are going to be some people out there who say the serpent is just its own agent. It has nothing to do with Satan. Or it's uh, another demonic figure that doesn't really get a name. Or it could even be an angel testing humanity. Like Those are valid ideas as like to think about. But when it comes to the actual text, it says that Satan... So I'm going to go with what the text says. And with that, we'll go to verses 2 through 7. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw... Oh, come on, Paige! Work with me there. There we go. Saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Here the woman mentions an addendum that didn't exist in the original command given by God and that they are not allowed to touch the fruit. God never said this in anything recorded in Scripture. Now, it is certainly possible that that could have happened off screen, but what is far more likely is that the woman, out of either a misunderstanding or a more legalistic sense of mind, gave herself a further command to not break, to perhaps remove the temptation to go near the fruit at all. It's like, oh, it's one of those things like, well... um, Uh, I'm not even going to look upon a woman in lust. Therefore, any movie that has a woman in any attractive situation, I'm never going to watch. It's like, okay, sure. They're going to miss out on a lot of really good movies. But I think you're more afraid of what's going to happen than actually solving any problems. You know, that may be what's going on here. Now, we know she can't be lying now because sin hasn't entered the world. and If she was corrupted then there's really no point in the serpent doing any of this. They would have been cast out of the garden forever ago, or at the moment that she lied. But it is still possible for her to be a bit pharisaical and legalistic in her interpretation of God's words. And that's something you'll see throughout Scripture, is how being pharisaical about something is never a good way to follow God's commands, to interpret God's commands. I mean, obviously, with the Pharisees themselves being the namers of that idea, that we even have a word for it, You can see it all through the Gospels when we covered them in Luke, like them making up additional rules to not even work on the Sabbath, not even heal anyone on the Sabbath or help someone on the Sabbath. When a Sabbath is supposed to be a day of rest and reflection to God, well, they would ruin it by not caring about God's people. So that's possibly what's happening here with the woman. Regardless, she has made things worse for herself by dialoguing with the serpent who has already proven untrustworthy in his speech, but the blame ultimately does not fall on her alone. As we see in the text, Adam was with her the entire time and never spoke up once to set the record straight. Both held the temptation to take whats what wasn't theirs to obtain, and neither man nor, excuse me, men nor women should be held as the scapegoats for why we have sin in the world today. That's such a common idea. It ruins ugh, the image of the church. You've probably heard it somewhere at least once. It's like, oh, well, it's your fault that we're in this situation. Uh, the men didn't do anything wrong. It's like, well, if you just read one part of the text and ignore another part, sure, you could have that idea. But the truth of the matter is, both were right there. The man was supposed to be the leader. He was the one who should have been speaking to the serpent, saying, hey, that's not what God said. Shut up. Get out of our sight. And the woman could have said that as well. But what happened? They wanted it. That temptation was there, and they wanted it. They desired it. And they gave into it. And that's why we're in the state we're in. And we also see here a serpent is continuing to speak in half-truths and misdirection, which is one of its greatest weapons. It tells them they will surely not die at that present moment in time for eating of the fruit, but they will as a cost of not listening and giving in to temptation. It is for this that God condemns the serpent later on. It's like the serpent didn't cause them to eat of the fruit, but it was certainly the catalyst that made them go, hmm, well, maybe I've already thought about this probably. I'm going to do it right here and now. Honestly, like you see, this across, like why 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 a fruit? Why couldn't it have been something else? Well, it didn't matter what it was that God forbade the men and women, excuse me, man and woman from doing. It could have been to never stand on their heads for three seconds at a time. It it could, or for them to never use a fire to cook food or or whatever. Like you go to see us, Lewis and Paralandra, is the uh, never sleep on the floating islands or something like that. It's the same premise. It doesn't matter what it is. The point is, God said not to do it. He gave a command. And his rule is absolute. The man and woman were tempted by power, and they gave in to temptation, bringing sin into the world. And guess what? You and I would have done the exact same thing were we to switch places with them. I know me. You tell me not to do something. That's the first thing I want to do most times. Other times, I'm like, okay, I totally get why. But no, all you have to do is say, Christian, you can can watch any movie here except that one. And I'm going to go, well, that's the first movie I'm going to watch. That's the first video game I'm going to play. That's the first book I'm going to read. It's like, I know me. And uh, you all—you might meet people out there who say, well, if I was in the garden, things would be different. It's like, yeah, sure, buddy. Uh, we call that pride nowadays. So that kind of proves the point of thinking that you're going to be better than the first man and woman. You also have immense hindsight available to you. They do not. It would have happened either way. And God knew it was going to happen. But that's part of his love for humanity is that he gave us that free will to say, Well, maybe I don't want to listen to everything God says. That's loving, to be given free will. God could have just made his puppets and say, don't eat this, and guess what they would have done? They wouldn't have done it, because they're working under his commands, and they have no real original thoughts of their own. They're just following him like mindless automatons. But no, he blessed us with that free will to say, hmm, well, maybe I don't want to serve God. Maybe I want to do what I do. Now That doesn't sound good, unless you're thinking, oh, well, God created creatures with the ability To rebel against him, to have a mind of their own outside of him, that they're not just robots. And I find immense pleasure in that. Even knowing what the end result was, I'd still take that over being created, lobotomized essentially, and just doing whatever. That's not loving to create a creature like that. So God did the opposite, knowing what would happen. And we'll be going through verses 8 through 13. And then, excuse me, and they heard the sound of the Lord, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife had hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God talked to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sounds of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. (sighs) <sighs> had sin in their lives for five seconds and a blame game already comes up. Classic humanity. Now, God, knowing exactly what would happen and yet still offering a chance for the first man and woman to explain themselves, calls both of them out for their misdeeds. And we'll get into how he does so further in a bit. He chastises the man first as the original creation and then the woman, both of whom fail the test of admitting their sins. Instead, the first lies are invented. As humans double down on their newfound sin natures, rather than beg for forgiveness out of genuine repentance for their evil deed. Now, who knows? I mean, perhaps God may have forgiven the first slight or the end result would have been the same. We don't know. Would Jesus still have to die in this scenario? Maybe it happens quicker. Maybe it happens immediately. Who knows? We don't, because they doubled down on their decision, falling into their sinful nature and their personal weakness, instead of admitting, hey... I was wrong. We shouldn't have done that. I wanted it, and I took it, and it's wrong. And then we see the serpent is rightfully called out as causing the issue to happen. But the serpent wasn't the one who gave in to temptation. Humanity was. Now, Eve is right to say, the serpent deceived me. The serpent did deceive her, but she's still the one who gave in. Adam is still the one to give in. Both of them are equally wrong. We go uh, uh, 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God righteously curses the serpent for its evil words and deception. Satan is cursed for engineering the introduction of sin into the world, and thus creating an everlasting enmity between him and the offspring of the woman who will ultimately create Jesus. On the cross, Jesus will be bruised at the heel, i.e. dying on the cross, but coming back to life, while the serpent will be bruised at the head, which means he won't recover from the damage Jesus delivers to him thanks to his victory over death. Like, you probably, something happens to your heel, you'll make it. Something dashes your head in, <laughs> uh, it's very unlikely for you to make it. So that's the imagery used there. It's like, you're going to cause him some harm. But he's going to kill you. And that's where we get it right there. God, from the moment sin enters the world, brings salvation as a chance for the people to be given, knowing they don't deserve it, knowing he could have just started right over and done his own thing. God instead looks upon them with mercy and love and gives them a chance. Now, it's not going to happen for a very long time, but it's more than they deserve. It's more than we deserve. And Satan gets exactly what he deserved. He is cursed to not be able to do what he wants to do, to be ultimately the loser in this conflict. He was always going to lose, but now it's set in stone. It has been said out loud, and there's nothing he can do, no matter any of his machinations, anything he tries to try to break down the church or to tempt Jesus away from the cross. It's going to fail because God has commanded it to be otherwise. And Satan has no power over God. He is not an equal and opposite of God. We are not Gnostics here. Satan is a nobody. He's a loser. And he's been losing this entire time. His whole life has been taking L's, even momentarily when it seems like he's gotten someone, a great Christian figure or whatever, to sin. Like, yeah, sure, you did that, but you're still losing, buddy. All you can do is call strife and discord, and that's not enough to overcome God, and it never will be. Now, looking at the woman, we see, uh, see that she is offered a curse and blessing of childbirth. Now, how childbirth was supposed to work before, you know, the curse is kind of irrelevant, I mean, it could have just been baby appears and there's no you know, biological process outside of the original act that the woman has to do. It just shows up after mat- maturing. We don't know. And we don't know because however long they were in the garden, it didn't happen. So it's going to happen after the fact. And at this point in time, pain is introduced and the whole process is marked with pain and suffering that should never have happened because of what man and woman did to sin. It will still deliver life into the world. It'll still be a beautiful process that brings children here, but the endurance one would have to go through is increased significantly. And it also introduces an envy to the woman and women to desire to take the place of the men that never would have existed had both parties not sinned. This isn't intended in the demeaning fashion towards women by God, as he punishes everyone involved. But verses like this have been used and abused by foolish men to harm women who act outside you know, societal expectations of normality, rather than the clear roles offered by God for both sexes. And there's really no easy way to put all that. There's going to be strife between men and women because of what happened all the way back then. It's inevitable. God promises it. We don't have to like it. We shouldn't like it. But here we are. And speaking of the men... Uh, Adam the man, meanwhile, is cursed with working and tilling the ground that had once been his great pleasure to manage while in paradise. Remember from earlier, we're supposed to be working. Adam was working. He was making sure the garden was being maintained. That was a good job to have because it was a lot easier to do. But with the introduction of sin, this is now a curse. In this corrupted world he now lives in, the ground will fight back rather than work alongside man, making work far worse than it should have been. Mankind has also been cursed with death, and there is no escape from it without divine intervention. And in fact, there are only two people in all of Scripture who never die. We will meet Enoch here in Genesis, and then we'll meet Elijah later on in 1 Kings. So that's two out of the billions and billions of people who've existed across time and space in this world. That tells me I'm not going to get out of this. That tells me you're not going to get out of this. It's an inevitability, and it happened because of the corrupted state that we're in. Now we go into verses 20 through 24, and we'll finish up today. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The woman is finally given a name here in Eve. And this is derived from the Hebrew word java, which means life or life giver. And we see that even in the midst of their sin, Adam and Eve establish a connection to each other. Adam's name this whole time had been to name others. Uh, He named the animals, and I don't know why he hasn't named Eve before now. Maybe they were brainstorming what it should be, and now it finally happened, or maybe he had a spark of inspiration. Uh, Who knows how long they went in the garden together? I kind of hope it's a less amount of time. If he never named her anything, he just kept calling her the the woman. (laughs) Not exactly the greatest husband in the world. Then again, uh, neither one of them are the greatest spouses in the world. So who knows? But either way, despite knowing what they did to each other, they stay together. It would have been tremendously easy to despise one another and leave their marriage and say, you caused this, you caused this. And I'm sure those fights happened along the way. They both lived like 900 some years, if you take that literally. But we do see that they eventually reconcile enough to become the first parents, to become the first married couple of the world from whom we're all descended. Now, their relationship would never be perfect or ideal as it had been in the garden, but it would survive just like them for many years until their time came. And God, in his mercy, does not abandon his foolish creations despite them deserving it. Once again, he could have just wiped everything out then, the moment sin was introduced and restarted, but he didn't. He stuck by us, knowing we wouldn't have done the same. And instead, what what does he do? He clothes them in their nakedness, but he does not forget their evil actions and exiles them from the garden preventing mankind from ever entering it again in their sinful state. That sounds like, why? Why couldn't they just live in paradise? Because they lost it. They lost the right to be there. They shouldn't be there. So what does he do? In his further mercy, he realizes what man could do. He says, oh, wait, the, the, free, the, the fruit of the tree of life is in there. If I eat that, then I'll never die. Well, sure, that worked back then. But now, when you are capable of death, when you're living in a corrupted world, That means you're going to live forever, growing older, uh, being sick. Uh, What happens if someone is cut down in battle? Uh, It's going to come back to life. It's the tree of, uh, it gives immortality, does it not? So to prevent this from happening, what does God do? He prevents them from being able to even access the tree of life. And now they don't have access to its immortality-granting properties. Now, sometimes in life, God's actions are going to seem extremely harsh but there is always a method to the madness that is working for the good of those who love him. And Adam and Eve do love God. We see that they do raise their children as best as possible. And guess what? They're screw-ups, too, like the rest of us. But as far as we can tell, it seems like they'll be with us in glory one day. Now, obviously, it doesn't say outright say Adam and Eve were both saved. And that's more of a modern interpretation anyways. But we see they are still devoted to God. They're still listening to him. So they could have tried to fight the cherubim that prevented them from going into the garden. Well, guess what? Uh, They would have lost. They would have died. And then God would really have had to start over. But he didn't because they listened. They obeyed. As they were clothed uh, from their nakedness, they had now left the garden behind, knowing they could never come back as long as they're alive. And with that, we have the end of Genesis 3. So thank you all for listening. If you just have a chance to leave a five-star review in your podcasting platform of choice, it'll really help me out. If you're interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwriterskill.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazel Ministries podcasting network. You can contact me at let nothing move you podcast at letnothingmoveyupodcast.gmi.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music that he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine and allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.